Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 93, recorded on November 4th, 2020. Docker Hub rate limits the Cloud Pod. Good evening, Ryan, Peter, and Jonathan. How's it going? Good, Justin. How are you? Uh, well, you know, it's the day after the election, uh, and there's still no president, so <laughs> it's uh, it's a bit of an interesting day. We were warned. We were warned, uh, and all the predictions have come true, unlike the polling, which apparently is not doing so well. But, uh, you know, it is a very close race. Uh, it may even get picked uh, in during the show recording, because uh, they said at 6 o'clock they'd have a drop from a couple of the states. So who knows? Maybe in the middle of the show we'll be like, hey, so-and-so won, but I don't know that's the case. I have a guest for us this evening, uh, and that is... Jacques Chester, who is the author of the Knative in Action uh, book from Manning Press, as well as a staff engineer at Pivotal slash VMware. Uh, say hello, Jacques. G'day, how are you? Um, it is a pleasure to be here again. Yes, he joined us uh, for TCP Talks episode four. Uh, for those of you who listened to our interview show, we had a great talk uh, very early on in the Knative in Action book writing process, and we talked about uh, several things, uh, particularly around Knative's uh, inability to move to CNCF, uh, you know, because Google mm-hmm. was having some political strife around, you know, their upsetness that potentially they gave up Kubernetes uh, for free and they shouldn't have done that. Uh, so it's been a little interesting. There's been a lot of things happening in that space since we talked on episode four. Uh, first of all, you, Ooh, yeah. Google came out with a new foundation to help, uh, you know, potentially hold the copyright language of the a certain projects, uh, which Knative was rumored to be part of, or maybe be part yeah, of. Yeah, they... they... They cooked up, I can't remember what it's called. It, I think it was OUC. I don't remember what that stands for. Um, but they, they set up a, it, it was really a vehicle for trademarks. Um, <clears throat> their argument was that you can do all the stuff already in an Apache license for patents and for copyrights, uh, but there's nothing in there about trademarks and that it's mostly trademarks that sort of people attach to anyway, in the same way that Linus DeVals controls Linux because he has the Linux trademark. You can't call it Linux unless he says so. Um, in the same way, the theory is they put it into these things. I, I can tell you the whole rant, or you can continue to set me up if you like. <laughs> I mean, you're on a roll. I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt you. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you the story of of what's happened. So, you know, when our merry band of adventurers were last joined in battle against um, the forces of confusion, uh, the state of play was that there was reform but it wasn't finished yet and that the real big sort of sticking point was that google just didn't want to put it into a foundation and everybody else wanted them to put knative into a foundation and it was a similar dynamic to istio as well Uh, and actually with a lot of the same people involved uh because you know it might be a, a so to speak a big city it's still a small town um the and so what happened in, in sort of October is that this was brought up again in, I think it was October or September, a thousand years ago. Uh, it came up again uh, for the first time in, a, in about a year. And the question was like, okay, we really need to get down to brass tacks about what we're doing here. Uh, one of the things that was proposed that started the conversation again was, okay, we've got this steering committee. At the moment, the steering committee is composed of appointees from different companies. Uh, and Google has a majority of those appointment slots. Um, and the proposal was, let's make that elected. Let's make those positions held by individuals, not as individuals on behalf of a company, but as individuals, uh, with an additional rule to cap the number of people who could be employed by any particular company, right? 
so that nobody could form a majority in the steering committee. And this, uh, it took a while for that to really get through. Google were not really keen on that at the start. And we run around in circles, a lot of conversations. It's it's all on the Knative uh, YouTube channel. If you look it up, you can see uh, something like six, 10 hours of conversations uh, amongst all the folks involved. Um, you can get sick of my voice even more if you tune into that. <laughs> and the thing that sort of came out of those discussions was that the really big sticking point for Google was the trademark. Um, they were really concerned. They seemed to have very strong feelings about about the control of the mark, um, and other folks had sort of strong feelings about the control of the mark, but in in a different way. You know that that Google wouldn't use it as a cudgel to to browbeat any of the other partners. So a really interesting compromise emerged, which is that the steering committee will become like a democratic institution within the project. Uh, it will be elected directly. It will be individuals and not appointees from companies. There will be limits on company representation to to create, um, you know, the the impression of fairness as well as the as the actuality of it. Um, and there is going to be a new committee called the Knative Trademark Committee, and that's where appointees will turn up. So, the founding KTC, as we're already calling it, uh, is Google, VMware and IBM. And the idea is that each member of that trademark committee has a veto. They can veto the use of the trademark for certain purposes. And this satisfies what Google you know, needed to feel safe. They needed to feel safe that you know, the, the things that they wanted, the identification they wanted with it, um, couldn't be sort of wrestled away from them and you know, whistled away in the night. Now, why they had that concern, you'd have to take it up with them. You know, it's 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 a big deal for Google. They they have invested a lot into Knative. They've spent a lot of money. They've dedicated a lot of people. They have dozens of teams, as as far as I can tell, touching different aspects of it, and not just within Knative Core, but also they've got a huge groups. You know, on all things around it in the cloud run effort, you know, adding extensions, improvements, features that integrate with other parts. So they're spending an enormous amount of money on it. And of course the other partners are too. I'm not saying that Google's doing all the working, but they, they just had a lot of nerves about, about the disposition of the trademark. So the trademark committee idea pretty much took all of the heat out of the conversation. It turned up, you know, everyone had to sort of like go think about it, but everyone's first impression was like, yeah, I think this works. Uh, and that's where we, la that's where we've landed. So there's, the trademark committee once a year it will decide whether to add more people to it be you know if sap comes in really hard for a year and becomes really involved or microsoft or anyone like that um, they too could be you know opted into the into the into the trademark committee and they would then get the same advantage as everyone else they would be able to vote on the use of the mark for different things and if they felt sufficiently strongly to block something they could you know interpose their veto uh, to prevent it being used in a certain way um, whereas everything else then goes back to the steering committee. Uh, so all, all the day-to-day -day sort of administrative stuff will, will go back to the steering committee. And it's a really good compromise. As far as anyone in the conversation knows, this is the first time it's been tried in, in this uh, sort of Kubernetes-centric universe of open source. Um, and I'm going to be very interested to see how it pans out, but I'm very optimistic. Um, I, I was very... Uh, bearish on what was going to happen when we started talking about 
reforming the steering committee. I, I didn't think it was going to come to a successful end. I thought, you know, Google's position was very strong and they weren't going to change it. it and ours was very strong and we weren't going to change ours. But the idea of a trademark committee, like, broke the logjam. And uh, I think I think everything is going to turn out well. Well, that's really great. I, I mean, I'm excited to hear that this seems to be a satisfactory compromise for the community and really address, you know, which was a big risk to both Knative and, you know, Istio as well. And maybe this solves it for other projects in the future too. So I, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. It sounds like it's a pretty amicable solution and we'll see how that works out and how the market feels about it. If, if you sort of have, you know, fears that because Google have not put it into a foundation that somehow they're going to exert undue control over it. Um, I think that that fear is pretty much dissipated uh, because you have to remember that now any of the other major vendors also has a veto, right? So if Google tries to do something absurd that's in their favor, uh, VMware can say, I don't like that. I, I veto that, that move. Uh, and IBM can do that too. And Google can do it to us if like IBM and VMware want to gang up to create uh, Knative dirigibles, you know, for whatever reason, Google can say, well, that's not really on brand, is it? Uh, we're going to veto that. You'll just have to get Zeppelins instead. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they're, they have loons, right? Isn't that their, their balloons or the loon balloons? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I haven't really kept up with the latest in, in cloud transport technology. I've not either. <laughs> it's definitely been mm. a, an area where they were making a lot of investments that then kind of I haven't heard much about. So, well, you know, Again, because your book is nearing completion and hopefully out very, very soon. As you said, it's in the final draft phases. And you can also get into the early access program with a you know, fantastic discount code that we have from Manning here as they've been a sponsor of the show many, many times. And done. Uh, we've sponsored some of their conferences as well. Uh, but you can go check out uh, the Knative in Action book by Jock uh, with discount code PODCLOUD20. Uh, you'll apparently say 40%, even though it's a 20, so don't ignore that part. But it's apparently a 40% discount on the early access book or the published book. Um, so if you're excited to learn all about Knative, and now especially since this trademark issue has been resolved, uh, hopefully you know adoption continues to drive very heavily for Knative. And so you might want to add this to your repertoire of skills, and Jock is a great uh, resource to get you started in your Knative journey. Any uh, any tips for those new Knative uh, engineers who are excited about it? Well, I mean, obviously, the, the thing I have to say is buy my book and tell me I'm wonderful. Not necessarily in that order. The main thing I would say is that the community is very approachable. Um, everybody is is very open and welcoming. Um, if you have sort of a, a question, have a, have a crack at uh, Stack Overflow, but also a lot of folks show up in Slack or in the mailing list. And, uh, and always, or, or, there are always people around happy to, happy to sort of weigh in or, or you know, take your issue on board and consider what it means. We'll definitely check the book out. Let's, uh, let's go to the matrix. Now you get to comment on everyone else's, everyone else's stuff, <laughs> which is more, mm -hmm. much more fun than uh, you know, being peppered with questions on an interview show. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, easy stuff. All right. Well, it is earnings season uh, once again, and uh, Microsoft kicked off the batch of earnings uh, with their Q1 2021 earnings, which tells me they are already over 2020. They're already into 2021. So nice job, Microsoft. Uh, their earnings are up 12% uh, to $37.2 billion, with net income of $13.9 billion. Uh, or earnings per share of $1.82. Uh, Azure was up 48% uh, in revenue, although that is only up 1% from the prior quarter. So they are starting to stabilize uh, right around 47 48% on their growth. But uh, again, it's still trending slower than the past. Uh, Azure revenue was $15.2 billion, up from 31% uh, year over year from the year before. So nice uh, success there by Microsoft. Azure is definitely continuing to be a big driver of growth. 
So if I'm looking at this right, that means that Asia is, or Asia, has anyone ever worked out, is there an official pronunciation guide? It's not Azuri or something? It's just Azure. Um, I'll, I'll let you fight it out afterwards on a pay-per-view. Someone, someone early on in the show emailed me and said, it's Azure. And I said, I won't fix it. <laughs> I tried for a couple episodes and I just can't do it. I'm, so if it's wrong, I apologize. Everyone out there in Azure land uh, cringes every time I say Azure. So I'm just I'm going. Well, you. however, however, as Yuri is is pronounced, um, what's interesting to me is that they're they're closing on half of all revenue there. You know, fifteen out of thirty-seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, really. They're getting up there. I mean, it helps that they're just consuming all revenue at Microsoft. You know, Office, all the Office Exchange revenue is now part of that, and you know, there's just a lot of stuff in there. Well, uh, Alphabet also had a big quarter. Uh, they crushed expectations. Uh, if you remember from last quarter, they were down revenue-wise uh, due to COVID and the drop in ad spending. And that has come back with a roaring vengeance. Uh, so revenues were 46.17 versus the 42.9 the analysts expected. Uh, Google Cloud came in at $3.44 billion, uh, in the last quarter. Uh, but Google has announced that starting next quarter, it will actually start reporting operating income for the cloud business, uh, joining Amazon and giving the investors that detail. And Sundar Pichai has to say, starting with our results in the fourth quarter 2020, we'll break out Google Cloud as a separate reporting segment. With the segmentation, you will additionally see information about the scale of our investment, which will help you gauge the progress we are making on the multi-year path ahead to create a sustainable value. Uh, so I suspect that... There's going to be a very negative reaction to how much money they're spending on cloud initially, and then people will start to feel better about it as they start to drop that investment and they start to see revenues start climbing up on the other side. I suppose that's their, they want to do it now before they you know, kind of go into a growth phase here as they just send a large amount of investment in new data centers and new technologies. We'll be curious to see what that actually does. There's also the doubt, right, about whether or not they were going to kill Google Cloud if it wasn't profitable after a certain length of time. So I guess by breaking it out like this, it's, it signals some somewhat mm-hmm. of a a message that then they're not planning on killing it just yet. A lot of folks I used to work with have gone to Google. Um, they seem they seem pretty keen. They're they're, they're putting in the in the hard word. I, well, that being said, I, I remember thinking if if I ran Google, they wouldn't turn a profit right now. Like I, I would be sinking every every spare copper I had into cloud, and I, I wouldn't care how much of it got wasted. I, I would basically just throw you know stacks of vouchers at people in the street if they looked like they'd seen a keyboard just to say get on get on get on and i think they are doing that in it's, a big way um which is fine you want to guys get, get as much of market adoption as you can and drive that story long term and i think that's what they're the, the breaking it out is going to let them kind of show that story a little better and then the, i think i agree with jonathan the the amount of negative press they got out of you know they're going to kill google cloud in three to four years if it isn't profitable or isn't a successful business i think really did spook a big portion of the market uh, who you know took a harder look at Google after that. So I think it, it makes sense for them to do it. Um, I wish Am- or, or Azure would also do it. Um, you know, they've always been kind of hiding it behind Office and a bunch of other stuff and their, their revenues as well. I'd like to see their net income from Azure investments because they're doing a lot of investing as well. Um, and you know, is it as profitable as a business as we think it is for those two companies? I don't know, but we'll find out next quarter. So that'd be a fun topic for uh, conversation. Well, then Amazon uh, reported 96.1 billion in Q3 revenues. Uh, Amazon subscriptions uh, last quarter had fell to 29% growth, uh, and this quarter they stayed at 29% growth. So maybe that's a flattening of that curve versus a drop. Uh, we'll see if that continues to 
stay flat over future quarters or if it continues to grow uh, drop down as well. Uh, overall, it's a pretty strong quarter. Uh, Amazon and revenue accounted for 12.1% of their total revenue uh, in the cloud. So uh, cloud continues to be a big driver of their profitability and their revenue story. Uh, but you know, we had things like Google Prime or Amazon Prime Day in the re- most recent quarter that will all show up in the next uh, earnings. So we'll see how that looks uh, with the holiday sales, which might be very, very high. That's still a pretty huge quarter over quarter growth number given how large that business oh t- unit yeah. is. I'd be now. very happy with 29% when you're talking about you know <laughs> a 20 billion dollar runway business it's uh, you know it's a lot of yeah. money all right well, let's move on to AWS news for the week uh, first up is Nitro Enclave so a few weeks ago uh, I talked about uh, actually you guys don't know I talked about this but I said you know, it's funny that Azure has confidential compute and Google has confidential compute, but Amazon announced something a year ago at reInvent, but hasn't generally available. And then, uh, apparently, the day after I said that, they announced it. And so, Jonathan, spared me a lot of email from you <laughs> for people saying, oh, they actually did generally available. So they have made available uh, the confidential compute capability of the Nitro Enclaves uh, for all of the computing users on AWS. Uh, if it's a Nitro-backed instance, it will now support the Nitro Enclave use case. Uh, for customers who need more security, the AWS Nitro Enclaves can be used to carve out an isolated environment on any EC2 instance that is powered by Nitro. Uh, it's a provable security, so it has a way to attestate that it is secure and is not accessible to other applications, users, or processes running on the parent EC2 instance. Uh, one of the things I saw some some bad takes on Twitter was that uh, this means that EC2 is clearly not secure, which is why this is, and this is not what they're saying. This is a level of security way above and beyond VPCs and security groups and all the things that you're typically doing in an application for data that's very, very sensitive that you don't want to have anybody have access to uh, that you want to write this enclave use case for. And this is the same thing we talked about here on the show previously with Google releasing something similar at, uh, in, you know, sorry, whatever their event is this year, next, the nine weeks of next, uh, they announced it, as well as Azure uh, announcing theirs as well. So this is just a bit of a catch up here for Amazon, who actually announced it first, but did not have it generally available. The first uh, versions of this are uh, limited to one per VM or per instance, and they will be adding additional capabilities for that in the future. So you can do multiples uh, on a single instance. And you do pay the usual rate for EC2. So this is a great increase in security for actually no additional cost. Yeah, if EC2 wasn't secure, you wouldn't be able to build something more secure on top of it, right? It would. It, right. Just, it doesn't work that way. But I was trying to explain enclaves to somebody uh, this week, actually. And I think that the, the easiest way to explain it is just it lets you deploy a black box with only one way in and one way out, and that's this tunnel which you establish from wherever you're going to send data in or out. And once it's once once you've deployed the 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 enclave with the with the running processes inside, you can prove that what's running inside is what you thought it was going to be. And then you feed data in and out through this one little hole, and nothing else touches it. There's no there's no uh, there's no networking. There's no connectivity to anything else. It's just in and out through the black box. Yeah. Security is, you know, very frequently done in two parts, right? There's securing and hardening the system, but then there's also demonstrating and evidencing that you've actually hardened it. And I think that's the real advantage here that you get, you know, with these secure workloads where you have to prove that you're running it securely. Speaking of for myself, I wish um, these systems had been more widespread a few years ago. Um, I worked on a, a secrets management tool called CredHub, sort of Lime Vault, sort of, and... One of the threat models was uh, root user logs into the machine and takes a dump of memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were using Java, and that meant that, in theory, strings could hang around in the memory. And if you could get your hands on the process and dump it, then you were in trouble. And uh, this is the sort of thing that would you know, more or less make that impossible. Even if somebody can dump the process, it's no good to them. 
Yeah, and even with the Graviton processors now, which support encryption of, of the RAM at the hardware level, once you deploy an enclave on the Graviton system, mm -hmm. you couldn't log in, and even if you could, it would be encrypted anyway. So it's I think it's I think it's smart for AWS not to add a a, uh, a premium to this. I, mm -hmm. I think it's going to be considered table stakes in just a few years. Uh, it's just so valuable and so useful, and it closes off so many kinds of attacks. Um, that rely on the operating system and security infrastructure to be perfectly constructed. Um, you have a much smaller surface area to defend. Yeah. Well, let's take one of the last big arguments about uh, physical security, because it's always been very common knowledge in the security space that if you have physical access to a device, it, I can compromise it in any way. Um, this is one of the last big ways they can argue that case and say, look, even if you did get physical access to our data center at AWS, you know, you, you, just because you have access to this, you can't have access to memory, it's encrypted. You can't have access to the processing, it's encrypted. Um, so this really solves that last real use case for security people who are super concerned about, you know, very high security use cases and workloads on the cloud. I think this really solves that final frontier of security, which is, a, you know, the highest levels of FedRAMP require, the highest levels of PCI require. I think this is a great, great thing for all three cloud providers to now have this and to be able to compete in the space. I agree with you. I think it becomes table stakes. And I think we start seeing much easier ways to take advantage of this um, now that they're all available and companies can start developing solutions to help you take advantage of them. Yeah, and hopefully we start seeing this technology rolled out into things like outposts and and you know other other like smaller solutions so that you can actually get that, that level of security at the edge if for that super fast processing. Speaking of the edge, you know, um, if I'm going to wave trendy things around, one, one thing that's a possible way that people will send stuff uh, to edge computing uh, systems is going to be as, as WebAssembly, as WASM. And that's, that's all great and hunky-dory, except that then there's an attack mode that someone else manages to send a program that uh, is co-resident with yours and starts to attack sideways into it. You're going to need this kind of enclave capability down to the very edge, down down to machines sitting at the edge, uh, counting pebbles, you know, or, or operating a checkout machine, you're going to need this kind of capability all the way through and to the degree that we can spread this kind of hardening throughout the entire ecosystem. We're all tremendously better off. So quite selfishly, I'm just going to say, Hey, cloud providers, you should like form a, a lovely little patent pool where you do just say everyone can use it without any discrimination or charge. Yeah. Well, I love to see, you know, Kubernetes and ECS and EKS and all these technologies take advantage of these things too, right? You know, they can tie into this and you're running a container that's in a secure zone in these enclaves. I think that's really great. So definitely curious to see where this stuff goes. I think this is just the beginning of this technology. I mean, it was big at, at Google Next. It was big at Azure. You know, it's big now at Amazon as well. So I, I think that's just the beginning of some really cool solutions coming out sometime in the future. Or maybe at reInvent in a few weeks. We'll find out. <laughs> Well, uh, the next one up is for users of Jira Service Desk, uh, which is what everyone uses if you don't want to use Remedy or ServiceNow. <laughs> so Jira <laughs> Service Desk uh, is a great way to do your IT ISM type workloads, workflow processes for you know creating new instances, et cetera. Uh, but they've always been somewhat disconnected from the use cases of AWS. But that is no longer the case with the new integration into Amazon Systems Manager Ops Center. Uh, this allows you, Service Desk users to view, investigate, resolve, uh, and resolve operational items related to their AWS resources while using their existing Jira workflows, as well as the ability to kick off um, Amazon Systems Manager automation runbooks from Jira Service Desk and remediate known issues, uh, which is really great, uh, nice integration to see, and definitely something I'm going to check out in the future when I'm using Jira Service Desk. Yeah, first read, I thought this was like very tied to 
Amazon service catalog, which I think I've ranted on the show before. Like, I, I, it's a it works for a small subset of use cases, but not everyone. But to see that this is actually you know featured, then you know a, a typical connector can be as far as like supporting multiple accounts right out of the box, um, using multiple technologies for management, you know, including systems manager and service catalog. So it's pretty neat. I don't know how many people out there are using Jira Service Desk. A lot of startups are using Jira Service Desk. Yeah. Uh, if they're not using Zendesk or one of those other desk.com type solutions, but uh, Jira Service Desk has definitely been taking the smaller, mid to small size market out of ITSM vendors for a while now. Because uh, you know, Remedy and ServiceNow are great products, but they're very expensive, they're very complicated to run. And if I have a small company or you know, a few hundred people, the overkill of ServiceNow doesn't make any sense. Uh, where something like Jira Service Desk it really comes in handy pretty quickly. So it's nice to be able to give these tools to even smaller organizations. It helps them drive down this infrastructure's code path. It helps them drive to better levels of security, which is important for everybody. Uh, one of the things I was, I was impressed by this is that it is actually supports multiple Amazon accounts. So it is multi-account aware, uh, and you can link multiple accounts, which uh, many times Amazon services don't think about the multi-account use case. Uh, so I'm glad to see this one uh, supported that out of the box. It's got to be table stakes. Talk about table stakes nowadays. Even the smallest companies have dev and prod. Yeah, but I mean, like we still don't have CloudFormation on launch for several products. So, <laughs> you know, until until those are covered as a zero-day, you know, release requirement, I, I hard to argue for multi-account. Well, for those of you who are on the HTTP2 uh, bandwagon and gRPC, one of the big challenges has been that you would have to support a network load balancer and a ALB load balancer. Uh, and then route traffic between those two endpoints uh, as you as now fixed for you, as the ALB will now support HTTP2 end-to-end, enabling you to publish gRPC services alongside non-gRPC services via a single load balancer. Uh, you can use EC2, Fargate, or ECS endpoints as gRPC targets uh, with support for gRPC health checks for those target groups as well. It's now available in all regions that support ALB, and there's no additional cost for the gRPC protocol beyond your normal ALB charges. So another great feature. I have a, a quick sort of technical question because I didn't read the link. Is it is it load balancing individual sort of gRPC messages or is it just like supported so that you get the tunneling and that doesn't confuse it? I think HTTP2 support was only only just added to ALBs. gRPC has a concept of uh, you establish a stream, a gRPC stream to another server. So I assume that it individually manages the gRPC streams to, to the targets. Yeah, it, it talks about server-side streaming, client-side streaming, and bi-directional streaming between client and server endpoints. So it's going to set that tunnel up between them and then to keep that traffic going. But based on the rules of whatever you're passing, so if you're going to different gRPC endpoints, it'll route that to the appropriate uh, set of servers on the back end. I guess my question is whether it behaves more like a sort of a circuit routing. It, it sets up the virtual circuit, as it were, between the, the client and the server, and it supports that in the sense that it lets bits flow through without going, this connection has clearly timed out and chopping it off all of a sudden, um, which is what you typically get when gRPC shows up for the first time in one of these systems. Uh, those systems go, this is weird, click, and then gRPC comes back and goes, why click? What's this click sound? I don't think any of us have a chance to really play with it yet, but, you know, it's a good question. I I think you're right, though, about the, the the abuse of the HTTP protocol, and it was meant for one thing and one thing only, which was serving, uh, you know, images and documents, and, and all of a sudden we've got permanent web sockets, and then we've got gRPC, and it's uh, multiple streams in parallel. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you, I'm at a... some point you feel like you need to take a step back and say, hey, let's just redesign this from a sensible place instead of trying to keep uh, finding new use cases for the software. Well, have I got an offer for you? Oh. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of a, of a project called RSocket, as in R for Reactive or R for Romeo, RSocket. 
which came out of some some Netflix folks with exactly that reaction. They were looking at their internal systems and going like, this is somewhere between bonkers and bananas and it doesn't make sense and we should do better. Um, so uh, for folks listening at home who want to be cool, I would look up Socket and be impressed. Definitely look into that. Yeah. Cool. I've heard of it before. It sounds very interesting. Anything Netflix kind of produces is very interesting on the surface. And then the question is, do they support it long-term or do they abandon it? They do sometimes, yes. Although then the other things live on forever, like Spinnaker, and I have to suffer with them. <laughs> so <I'm> just, <laughs> <laughs> it could go one or two ways. Either I, it's, the, it's the penalty I keep paying or it's the, uh, you know, I really love this thing and no one else did. So that's how it goes. I was interested to see that the, one of the, when I signed up for reInvent this year, one of the topics of interest that you could, you could uh, sign up for was actually Netflix. And I deliberately chose not to choose Netflix this year because I think they've, uh, they've, they've squeezed that so much over the past year, number of years. I, I just don't want to hear about Netflix and AWS anymore. Yeah. Mm. I, it's weird to me that Netflix is a whole topic you could select. I mean, you can only pick three to begin with. I have a list of like 100 yeah. and that sign up for the reInvent, which, by the way, you can now sign up for reInvent <laughs> digital. Uh, so you can do, join the live stream and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it's a little odd because they only let you pick three items uh, to kind of help tailor your your program. And I was like, this is a weird set of limitations I don't fully understand. Maybe they should run it on AWS so it scales. That'd be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> you say that every year. I guess I guess there's something to be said for the, sort of the, the, the idea of Netflix and the culture of Netflix. And, and I think maybe maybe the, the idea of what Netflix is doing is more interesting than the, the actual things they're doing. I don't know how much they're continuing to invest and innovate new things for video streaming. I mean, I'm sure there's there's optimizations you can do in you know, protocols. I'm sure there's different things you can do in UI, UX design for how you discover content. Although I think they keep making it worse because it's always harder and harder for me to find what I want to watch on Netflix. Uh, but yeah, from a technical perspective, I'm not sure how much of a technical company they are anymore as much as they are a content production house now just pumping out a lot of content. Um, yeah. you know, but I'm sure someone will write to me and tell me, oh, actually, we developed a ton of new technology and things you just don't understand yet, which is fine. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy I'm to be gonna, wrong, but I, I, on the surface, I don't see it. I'm glad they just added more uh, kind of parental controls, controls over content that different profiles can have access to. Uh, with, with COVID, I assume that was the main driver for, for that kind of thing because uh, I just, Captain Underpants just drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the cartoon is a uh, the movie was yeah. too much for me. I can't imagine there's a show. It's, oh no! All right. Well, uh, Amazon has uh, apparently decided to get some fondue on neutral territory with a new region in Zurich, Switzerland, now in the works. Uh, this new region will open in the second half of 2022 with three availability zones and will be their eighth region in Europe, joining Dublin, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, London, Paris, Stockholm, Milan, and the announced Spain region, which is supposed to go live in 2021. Uh, so I'm really happy about that. I'm super glad there's eight now in Europe, but, uh, can I get some more regions in the U S please? Maybe, maybe in the Midwest or central region, perhaps. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're going you're to keep data someplace, if it's not under a mattress, then Switzerland is the second best place. <laughs> yep. Yes. Data sovereignty. Uh, yep. That's right. You, suddenly the fact that your account is just a number becomes important again. Yeah. <laughs> so glad to see a new region. Definitely. Uh, glad to see that continue to get built out, but, uh, Again, can I get a can I get a Utah region maybe or Arizona or somewhere in Central, please? Kansas City, Texas, I mean, and then I can visit it while I'm yeah, there. Yeah, you can visit it. Yeah. I thought they were going to build data centers around there, down deep in those uh, in those limestone caves. They have them. There's a company called Cavern Technologies. I'm good friends with them, and that's what they do. Oh, awesome. Yeah. 
Free plug. There they go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think we'll, we'll have Amazon Cloud Swiss Watch. <laughs> Swiss Cloud Watch. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> they can use it with a time series database they, they released. Yep. Do you think it'll still have a 10-minute delay? All right. Well, if you uh, are pushing the boundaries of GPU-based instances today uh, with the G series or any of the other series, uh, Amazon has a new instance type for you. This is the new P4 instance. Uh, these instances are powered by the latest Intel Cascade Lake processors and feature eight of the latest NVIDIA A100 Tensor Core GPUs, each connected to all the others via NVLink and with support for NVIDIA GPU Direct. Uh, with 2.5 petaflops of floating point performance and 320 gigabytes of high bandwidth GPU memory, the instances can deliver up to 2.5x the deep learning performance at up to 60% lower cost to train when compared to the P3 instances which predated it. Uh, they do include 1.1 terabytes of system memory and 8 terabytes of NVMe-based SSD storage. They deliver up to 16 gigs of read throughput per second, and they have four, four 100 gigabit network connections to a dedicated petabit scale non-blocking network fabric uh, accessible via EFA that was designed specifically for the P4 instances along with 19 gigabits of EBS bandwidth that can support up to 80,000 IOPS. And you can cluster these together into what they're calling an EC2 Ultra Cluster that can support 4,000 or more GPUs, uh, and they're only available to you, though, in one size, P4D24X large, and can only be launched in US East 1 or US West 2 today. Uh, and you must have an AMI that supports the NVIDIA A100 and the most recent ENA drivers. Uh, you can purchase them on on-demand savings plan, reserve instances, and spot, uh, which I recommend doing on spot because I'll talk about pricing here in a moment. Uh, and <laughs> they don't, they're not supported yet with SageMaker or EKS, although they do say that is coming very, very soon, uh, which is a big way that many, many users uh, access machine learning is through SageMaker. Uh, and if your CFO or FinOS person is listening, uh, please get them some uh, heart medication because this bad boy is expensive. Uh, at $32.77 per hour, or $24,380 a month on-demand price. Uh, although you get that down to $8,600 uh, if you do a three-year uh, advanced prepay RI. So that's, a, that's an expensive box, uh, but it's very powerful. And if it can help you uh, get all of your uh, bandwidth and needs for your machine learning, maybe it pays for itself. I mean, yeah, I mean you, you need Go some ahead. way to get rid of all that VC money, you know. <laughs> And yeah. the really amazing thing about machine learning is that we've mechanized the the, uh, the shoveling of cash into an inferno. It's really fantastic. I mean, that's really the kind of instance, though, which which is going to put people like delivery drivers uh, out of business. I mean, Amazon are <laughs> investing in Zooks for self-driving vehicles. It's 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 not a huge step to think that they're going to use this kind of technology to to run their own uh, autonomous fleet of delivery vehicles and, and trucks across the nation constantly. So. If there's anything you can always rely on Amazon to do, it's to do incredible work to get rid of people yeah. <laughs> uh, from the logistics operation. It's true. And, you know, at one level, it's great. It, it increases the efficiency and everyone benefits. Um, at another level, it's creepy to have self-delivering packages. I don't know. I, I, for a person in technology, I'm a bit of a Luddite sometimes. <laughs> the claim is always, of course, that, well, these, these people will get better jobs. We'll train them to do different things. But that's not always going to be the case for sure. But I, I definitely think... Within you know five years, there's going to be trucks driving down the street with Amazon Prime logos on the side, and they'll be launching fleets of uh, of drones dropping packages on people's uh, front front yards and porches and things, and flying back to the truck. It, uh, it gets worse than that. Uh, I saw a video, and I don't know if it was fake or not, but it was ostensibly some video from an internal presentation at, at Amazon, and it showed a giant Amazon Zeppelin mothership yeah. floating over floating over Seattle, and drones were flying to and from it like it was. Yeah you know, the Death Star and, uh, and all the TIE fighters coming and going. It was uh, terrifying, but also very plausible. 
Zeppelins are an incredibly cheap way of shipping goods. I mean, if you don't need it fast, then ship things ship things via Zeppelin between China and the US. Yeah, you just you just have it flying laps. Yeah, float, floating warehouse. A whole new, a whole new uh, set of uh, Zeppelin pirates and things, you know, <laughs> fl- taking to the skies and stealing goods from from these <laughs> unmanned floating balloons. <laughs> That's right. Uh, pirates and cloud crime. All I can think of is uh, the movie that star Tom Hanks and the guy saying, "I'm the captain now." Mm-hmm. And he'll be saying it to a computer that's just like command not recognized. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> uh, I did see a pretty good ML joke the other day, uh, which I did share on our Slack uh, on the CloudPod. But uh, it said, uh, changing random stuff until your program works is hacky and bad coding practice. Uh, but if you do it fast enough, it's machine learning and pays four times your current salary. <laughs> so uh, that, was a, that was a pretty good joke. But yeah, you can definitely do that much faster with these P4 instances, uh, which, uh, again, you're... Do talk to your FinOps people before you do that because 24000 uh, that's a big surprise anomaly bill that you're going to get <laughs> on that one. I wonder with that deep discount on, on long-term RIs if that's just a prohibitive cost so that they don't have to, you know, or they won't run out of capacity like super fast. Well, I mean, part of RIs is all about Amazon knowing where they need capacity at. Um, and, you know, and some of them include, you know, the ability, the guarantee that the capacity will be available to you um, or you have a capacity reservation as well as an other option to do it, but um, it, it definitely is a way for them to you know, give you a discount for committing to them that you're going to spend them a lot of money, and then they can also now commit that resource saying, okay, that's a known known revenue-producing box versus one that we are just having on the floor selling it for spot for pennies on the dollar. Uh, I could not find these in the console yet, so I, don't, I, did not, uh, I did not know what the spot market rate on these is yet, but I will I'll keep an eye on that and let you guys know what I see in a future future episode. Well, the next story uh, is in the Amazon section, but is actually going to impact everybody. Um, so you may have heard a little bit about Docker, and uh, Docker, of course, you know, split off their revenue-producing business and is now kind of their own company. So they may be a little bit in trouble. Uh, they decided to start limiting the rate at which images on Docker Hub can be pulled under their anonymous and free plans. Uh, and these limits will progressively take effect beginning November 2nd. So uh, this is the 4th. They've already started to take effect. Uh, once fully in place, free plan anonymous users will be limited to only 100 pulls per six hours, and the free plan authenticated accounts will be limited to 200 pulls per six hours. And if you're paying for either the pro or the team account, uh, you can you'll not see any rate limits. Uh, with interest of these limits, customers may see throttling errors when auto scaling, such as when building from a parent public image or pulling a public image to run. Uh, and if you start seeing these issues, Amazon has several ways for you to mitigate this. Uh, things as simple as you're know, using a private ECR. Uh, to basically copy what you need into your own repo or upgrading to a paid Docker Hub subscription, uh, which you know may be a short-term option. And then Amazon has also given you some tools to help you identify those upstream uh, images that you may be impacted by this with the AWS Container Images Toolkit available to you to generate a list of public images in your code repos, ECS, EKS, and self-managed Kubernetes cluster. Uh, the ECS, one of the things I wanted to mention here is that the ECS agent it actually comes from Docker Hub. <laughs> and so if you're on the latest version, uh, you won't be impacted because they've updated the ECS agent to basically grab the download from S3 instead of going to Docker Hub. Uh, but if you're running your own AMI, you will now break, for sure, because <laughs> you now have to get that ECS image every time you do a scaling action, which for many environments scale up and down all day long, and those limits can get hit very, very quickly, especially when you're doing builds and you're doing all these other things. Uh, all EKS uh, add-on software is hosted on ECR, so those are not impacted, which is great. And they're not subject to those limits. And then the uh, many, many other EKS components, though, are, including the new load balancer controller, uh, which we talked about last week here on the show. 
So that's a big, big deal. Amazon has apparently committed to building a new public container registry within weeks uh, based on their ECR technology that will help deliver billions of containers to users today and make that available to the public market as well, as well as with a new website. So at least they are trying to help you out with that, uh, which is great, And you know, but it's still a few weeks away, and so this will be impacting you in a really bad way until you get up to date on the new public repos from Amazon or from Google or from Azure, who I'm sure will follow suit very, very shortly after this. Uh, if you are uh, in a bad situation and you want to pay for those subscriptions, I do want to caveat to you that they are not uh, they're not expensive. They're about $5 per month per individual if you do an annual purchase uh, or $7 if you want to do it on a monthly basis. And a team will cost you uh, $7 per user per month on annual and $9 per user per month for the team. Uh, but either scenario, you have to go update ECS or EKS or any of these solutions to do authenticated Docker Hub pulls, uh, which does require some changes if you have not been prepared for that already. The big question I have with these is uh, exactly how are they going to enforce these limitations? Like, is it just it's per image? So, am I competing with every ECS customer for for that two hundred limit? Because that's going to be basically exhausted immediately. Right, because it's anonymous. You're already not authenticated. How do they know if you if you're doing a hundred times or somebody else? Yeah, I mean, in their defense, uh, I, I, I assume while Docker was a profitable company. Swallowing the cost of running a Docker Hub was uh, kind of made sense, and so I, I understand why they have to make a change like this because people have taken advantage of their the generosity, I suppose. But uh, man, this is going to cause loads of problems. Well, and I feel like it came with no notice. Like, when did they announce this was coming out? Like, it seems. You know, it's one thing to make this change, but you make this change at the beginning of the year, <laughs> give people a little bit of time to fix this problem. You don't just say, tomorrow we're doing this thing and, and now you're screwed. That's that's a bad scenario. and It's going to leave a lot of people upset, I think. Well, it's going to get people to move to a platform they could trust. Well, you say that, but there's there's a number of sort of tricky problems with it. Um, one, one thing actually I can give as a quick tip to anyone who's listening uh, you will run into limits very quickly if you have any sort of a CI or CD system that polls to see if, if there are new images. Most such systems in the past have been implemented under the hood doing a get. They, they sort of do the first step of the poll operation where they go and get the manifest file. And that's been counted as a whole poll by, uh, <clears throat> by Docker Hub. So even if you don't fetch any of the layers, you don't ship the bulk of the image, it still gets counted as a pull on that image. It gets counted towards your limit. So what we found uh, when we started freaking out internally at, at VMware, uh, and also in consultation with people freaking out at Google, um, that uh, you can perform a head request, and they will not count that towards the total. Uh, that's not perfect, because different registries um, outside of Docker Hub don't support the head uh, operation properly. But um, you should investigate whether your CI/CD system is now switching over to use head operations to check for new images, and then that way the the check to see if there's a new image doesn't count towards your total. Only the actual pulling counts towards your total. Um, so a change went into a, a library that's pretty widely used um, called GGCR or Google Go Container Registry. A bunch of different tools use that uh, to interact with registries. And so it now does that. It has the smarts to use the head operation first before before trying to get operation if you just want to see if there's a new image. Um, that's that's the first thing I would say. I think the second thing is um, Docker kind of did this to themselves um, due to the design of the registry API. 
Uh, it essentially hard codes the Docker Hub domain. If, if you don't specify a different domain for your registry, it assumes Docker Hub. If you say Ubuntu, it assumes that it's actually dockerhub.docker.io you know, hub slash library slash Ubuntu colon latest, right? That's what that gets expanded out to. Um, and this is what's going to make it really hard to deal with this situation with private registries. Uh, you, you might sort of think to yourself, well, just do a copy and cop, you know, copy and a search and replace and, and just change them. And it's like, you say that now. I was talking to a person working on this problem. He said he had found 14 different places where people stuff this information into Kubernetes manifests. Yeah. Like sometimes it comes with a key. Sometimes it's a string. Sometimes it's assembled from other strings in a wacky templating language. Like there's no automatic way of doing this. It's going to cause a lot of chaos. Uh, and as I said, it's, it's really Docker's fault for coming up with such a <sighs> incomplete registry API. You know, if it was something like Maven, where there's a separation between the address of the registry or the repository that you talk to and the coordinates of the package you're interested in, this, this wouldn't be so disruptive. But as it is, it's going to be a mess. Um, so anyone who's listening who can change these things, let's have a V3. Let's do V3 registry API. We should make it easy, right? This, shouldn't, this should never happen again. Make the pain stop. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jacques Chester, and I approve this message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be terribly surprised to see maybe they walk this back just a little bit, at least for a short period of time, because I think there's going to be a lot of fallout as they start enabling on some popular ones. Like, think about Ubuntu uh, or you know Red Hat Linux or CoreOS stuff. Like, there's a ton of you know very very popular uh, containers that are hosted on these things, and that's the promise they made to these open source companies is that you can host your data there for free on Docker Hub, and now they're changing the contract. So that's that's a big deal. It's it's hard for them. Like, I'm, I am sympathetic. Um, I worked on a, a, a system at Pivotal that um, w was, I, I guess, kind of like the Docker Hub for Pivotal software. It was called PivNet, or Pivotal Network. And at one point, we began to make it much easier to integrate with that automatically. And a lot of teams internally started using it as a switchboard. They used it as a, an intermediate sort of um, depository in the middle of CI. They would sort of build a product, push it in and mark it as a draft, and then pull it back out in the next step. And it was a phenomenal amount of traffic. Uh, and people use Docker Hub the same way. They, they spray thousands and thousands of images in just to advance it to the next step in a pipeline because it's so convenient and it's so free. And I've always wondered how the heck Docker Hub has been tolerable as a financial, you know, consideration. Yeah, this is where all of a sudden this Oracle how... swoops in and takes the business <laughs> <laughs> with their much much cheaper bandwidth usage. <laughs> uh, you have really maybe the lack of notice is is uh, indicative of the fact that they 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 couldn't give further notice. You know, they they are running out of money. I think that's what it is. I think they are that desperate. Yeah. There's there's a, a rumor that's done the rounds that they did sort of try to put the hard word on, on the big three cloud providers to say, look, a lot of your traffic, uh, a lot of your systems rely on us and it would, it would be a real shame if your cloud burnt down, you know, and uh, <laughs> that they were also told to go and jump in a lake um, by everybody. And I think this, this was an act of desperation. Now, I emphasize that that's a rumor. I have no evidence whatsoever. Uh, but that's true. Um, but yeah, it does, it does feel as though 
there's not enough money and there's not enough VCs around who have stars in their eyes. You know, they, they haven't been able to convince them that it's machine learning somehow. Yeah. Or, or you know, it's, exactly. somehow it's a big data story where, you know, we'll take all this data from all these containers right. people are downloading and come up with some solution for how to invest in the markets or something. <laughs> you know, it's to be something weird. Cloud computing has changed the way we live, do business, and stay connected. With everyone using the same cloud platforms, winning and losing comes down to having the best talent to build products better and faster. So whether you're an aspiring innovator looking to level up or a business harnessing the transformative power of the cloud, tech skills and cloud certifications have never been more important. Cloud Academy has thousands of video courses, learning paths, practical hands-on labs in real-world cloud environments, and tools designed to help teams assess, build, and validate critical cloud skills. Most importantly, Cloud Academy stays agile, challenging you with new content, labs, and tons of features that ensure your skills stay relevant and everyone can level up. They cover everything from major certifications to DevOps, security, and programming languages. Cloud Academy is a cloud training platform of choice for Fortune 500 companies and thousands of tech professionals around the world. Don't just take their word for it. Check out their reviews on G2 and get started now at cloudacademy.com. For a limited time, our listeners can lock in 50% off the monthly price for life. Just put in the coupon code CloudPod when checking out. It's a great way to pursue certifications or just cloud build expertise during this crazy time. Again, go to cloudacademy.com and use the coupon code CloudPod to lock in 50% off the monthly price. Well, moving on to GCP this week, they have a couple of interesting announcements for us. The first one up is the new Google Cloud Shell Editor. Uh, you can find this at uh, ide.cloud.google.com. This is a web-based cloud shell editor that lets you uh, use the power of Eclipse Thea IDE platform to develop your Google Cloud cloud-native solutions. Uh, typically, developers, when evaluating clouds, will be looking at setting up their dev environments or their IDEs, getting all the libraries right and the dependencies, uh, making it very difficult to do quick evaluations of technologies like Google Cloud um, or others. So the Google Shell development environment makes that much, much easier with pre-configured tools uh, let you get started with all your cloud-native development needs on Google Cloud. It includes a local emulator for Kubernetes and serverless, as well as command line tools for working with your cloud-native apps, all available directly from the web browser. Uh, the shell has some interactive tutorials for you uh, for Google Kubernetes and Cloud Run, as well as the cloud code uh, is a set of IDE plugins currently available for IntelliJ and VS Code. Those have also been ported to the Cloud Shell Editor. Uh, cloud Shell Editor today supports Go, Java, .NET, Python, and Node.js out of the box. Uh, and it does have integration into Git and all of the Git workflows. And no Ruby on Rails, huh? An emulator oh. for uh, for Kubernetes. That's great. I'm going to wait for the, the first person to start running their production workloads inside the Cloud yeah. Shell. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to run Kubernetes clusters anymore. I can just run it in Cloud Shell. <laughs> do, do you want to know a funny thing? Is that the origin story of Heroku is that they had an IDE, like a web IDE, and then they were like, "Oh, we need some way to make it easier to run this software." And then they realized that's what people actually wanted. So yeah, <laughs> run the software. And yeah, so what you're predicting, it's going to happen. And someone will be like, I have an idea for a business. Yep. Great. That's where we all started, right? The, the PaaS was the vision. And then Amazon won with infrastructure as a service. And now we're all climbing our way back to PaaS. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we tore it down so that we could climb back up it. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll, you know, then we'll I, do I'm it again. I'm just really glad that, yeah. I'm just glad that software engineers had nothing to do with the Tower of Babel, right? Because we'd be we'd still be in Babylon, rebuilding the damn thing for the hundredth time. Yeah. 
Just go back to Fortran. It was all perfect in Fortran days. <laughs> we didn't need those other languages, C and C++. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, that's nice. I, I'm glad to see a competitor to, to uh, Cloud9 or whatever that thing is from Amazon that no one uses because it requires an EC2 instance. Uh, I'm still I'm still hoping for a Cloud Shell competitor on Amazon. I think that'd be – or even Azure a little bit. Well, for those of you who are really into eventing and eventing workflows, uh, Google is announcing the new Event Arc which is a new events functionality that allows you to trigger cloud run from more than 60 Google Cloud sources. Uh, in the preview release, EventArc helps you easily build event-driven Apple uh, applications and take care of event ingestion, delivery, security, authorization, observability, and error handling. Uh, several key use cases they mentioned in the article are video analysis, file conversions, news or signups, app monitoring, and more. Uh, some of the key features are, again, the ability to uh, receive events from 60-plus Google Cloud sources. Now, uh, they do caveat this here that this is via cloud audit logs, which... Is not really where I want to trigger my event from, but yeah, sure. Okay. And then you can also receive events from custom sources by publishing to PubSub. Uh, you can adhere to cloud event standards for all your events, regardless of source, to ensure a consistent <coughs> developer experience, and enjoy on-demand scalability and no minimum fees, all available to you from the event arc. Uh, together, event arc and cloud run make it easy to build a standardized event-based architecture without having to manage the underlying infrastructure, and Google is planning to make event arc a full-featured events offering for Google Cloud in the future. So hopefully that means uh, triggered by more than cloud audit logs. I'm a big fan of this architecture pattern. Just, I mean, it's probably heavily influenced by the fact that I run, you know, internal services, and um, which by define, by definition, usually have to be, you know, low budget items. So, empowering something like this and making it, you know, sort of easy and general, general purpose, I, I'm really, really a fan of. So, it's cool to see them do this. I agree with you about the cloud audit logs. It's a little bit okay, but. Uh, you know, it's got the other functionality that pops up too. I, mean, I guess it's just just an example, though. I mean, I I, th I think being able to connect any service to any other service through the through a, an event arc or an event bridge or whatever you want to call it, same same technology is um, is really cool. It's like Lego. Exactly. I wonder to what extent it's based on Knative because that calibrates how much I should just try to wedge my book into the conversation. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Isn't Cloud Run just the the managed version of Knative? Ah, uh, that's a whole story. Um, yes, and also no. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, there's actually at least sort of two and a half Cloud Run implementations. Um, so there's, if you just call it Cloud Run, uh, then it is fully managed and it's Knative sort of surface wrapped around Google App Engine because you know they've they've got that infrastructure. It's very mature, very performant. You know, hooray. Uh, then if you say Google Cloud Run for Anthos, I think it used to be Google Cloud Run for GKE uh, or serverless add-on for GKE. I've forgotten. They changed the name every 20 minutes. Um, that was actually like vanilla Knative, the stuff you can get from the repos on GitHub, but installed and operated by Google. And then there's the other Google Knative, no, Cloud Run for Anthos, I think, when it's installed, I think that's, again, a vanilla bits that have been sort of packaged and bundled and so on. But it's so confusing. You have to sort of, like, look for the the formal title. You know, it's like you're standing there introducing people at the ball, and you have to make sure that, oh, no, this is Baroness Cloud Run. We've got to make sure to get it right. Sounds like a great way to get super confused and have a whole bunch of different experiences depending on a bunch of really arbitrary borders. 
I think it was a marketing mistake. It it feels like a, a like they shipped Conway's Law. I, I have a feeling that there were different teams and they decided to ship both. Um, and I understand that there was a good case for doing it that way, at least for the the hosted application engine sort of wrapper. But I think they got to clear that up. Yeah. Bit. Well, I think they had, you know, App Engine has a bit of a bad name, um, you know, from the early days of App Engine when they, you know, were very draconian and how, like, you're going to do it the Google way and only the Google way. So the rebranding of App Engine to Cloud Run would make sense. But then I think they confuse it when you tie in, you know, sometimes it's K native and sometimes it isn't. But uh, yeah. That's a, that's a bit of a nightmare to uh, troubleshoot. <laughs> like, why does it work right here and not over here? And it just happens to be some weird thing. Yeah, why don't I see logs that look like Kubernetes logs? Um, why can't I use monitoring tools that I use on Kubernetes, that sort of thing? Um, that being said, everyone I've talked to who's gone in on Cloud Run has been really happy. Like, I've seen a lot of great feedback on it. Um, I should probably say they've all said it was awful because I work for VMware and where competitors <laughs> are. are. Um, I just, I don't, in a sense, I, I don't care as long as developers are happy. Uh, I'm less concerned about how they got to be happy. And if they're happy with Google, that just means that at VMware, we're going to make sure that they're happy with us too. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it's a really good offering. I think it's an important step. It's weird that they're doing the audit logs approach that just has the kind of a, what can we ship by the next conference vibe to it. Uh, but it's a good start. I think the big thing about this is cloud events. Um, I talk a lot about this in, in the book, uh, -huh. there it is. And um, Azure were first. Azure were the first to actually have cloud events for everything. And they did this like ages ago, last year maybe, uh, they had already done this. Um, and it's, it's really exciting that we will actually get to the point where infrastructure that understands how to just, you know, ingest, route, manage, observe, derive, process, whatever, the cloud event format or the cloud event standard uh, we'll be able to smoothly interoperate across multiple providers, right? Like I, I'll be able to, to receive AW, uh, uh, like an Azure queue notification as a cloud event. Uh, I'll be able to know that the upload to my GCP storage event turns up and I throw it into something in Azure that flies into a hyperscale DB or whatever. Um, that will become a, a much more plausible world uh, as cloud events become more common. So that's good. I'm excited. Because I had to see that world too, <laughs> as soon as it gets here. A couple new uh, features available to you in Google Cloud Storage, object lifecycle management policies for particular. Uh, these new rules are designed to help protect your data and lower the total cost of ownership of Google Cloud Storage. Uh, the new capabilities uh, give you more control, which is great. So the first one is the delete objects based on archive time. Uh, many customers leave OLM protect, uh, or, sorry, leverage uh, ILM to protect their data against accidental deletion with object versioning. However, without the ability to automatically delete version objects based on their age, the storage capacity and monthly charges associated with the old version of the object can grow very quickly. Uh, with the non-current time condition, you can filter based on archive time and use it to apply any and all lifecycle actions that are already supporting, including deleting and changing storage class. Uh, or in Ryan terms, you can now set a lifecycle condition to delete an object that is no longer useful to you, reducing your overall TCO. So there you go. And then the second one they announced is the ability to set custom timestamps. Um, this is the ability to set a custom timestamp in the metadata field to assign a lifecycle management condition to the OLM. Uh, prior to this feature, the only timestamp that could be set uh, was when the object was written to the bucket. Uh, so if you're moving from one bucket to another because you mess up your data lake strategy, sorry, too bad, that data will all have the new data uh, timestamp. 
And now you can now specify that as metadata, which is great. So then you can use ILM and OLM is proper. There you go. It would be nice, though, if, if you could have a rule that says delete it if it's this old, as long as it's not still the current version. Yeah. <laughs> if then that statement for your OLM. I mean, I, don't, I, I haven't looked at OLM in a while. I might have some of that use case logic. I don't know. Is it YAML, or can we use YAML somehow? <laughs> Solve all problems with YAML. No problem. Hmm. Uh, and then Google is releasing uh, three new features in preview for the Cloud CDN today. The first one is the ability to have cache modes, a new concept that allows Cloud CDN to automatically cache common static content types without further origin configuration, cache all responses, or continue to respect your origin's cache directives. The second one is the ability to set and or override the cache TTL so you can fine-tune how long Cloud CDN caches your responses and when they revalidate expired objects and their cache, as well as define client-facing TTLs to make the most of browser caches. And the third one is... The custom response headers allowing you to reflect the cache status to your clients, geographic data, and or own static response headers such as cross-origin resource sharing or course policies and or web security headers when serving from cloud storage or the compute engine. Uh, there are also some new things they're working on as well, uh, including the ability to serve stale content when your origin is overloaded or unavailable, uh, which I think would be pretty cool. And then you'll also be able to bypass the cache when needed and configure cache behaviors as status code granularity often called negative caching. Uh, these capabilities will be available to you before the end of this year. So look forward to us talking about those again here on the show when they get released. I like negative caching. It sounds completely ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that really. I mean, if it, you're sort of taking well-established protocols, you know, this is how you define whether or not an object's going to be cached from the origin, and browsers understand the language, web servers understand the language, and you, you take those things and you throw them out the window and say, okay, but we're going to build this service that ignores all that stuff and just does something else anyway. It, it just, I, I can't see how not doing it the right way is better than, than doing it the right way. I, I just got to admit, I don't understand what it is. It, it's sort of like saying, you know, negative time or negative matter. Did, when I put the next thing into the cache, does it cancel out the negative cache and it's just a zero? I mean... That's nonsense. Is it anti-cache? Does it destroy cache in a giant explosion? Negative time makes more sense to me than negative caching. Uh, yeah, I kind of did myself in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, you make a good point. All, all the people who've <laughs> read a pop science book are coming. Run! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know about quantum physics on Twitter. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I understand serving stale content if the origin's not available. But again, it now becomes a behavior that if you don't want that to happen for some reason because the, the validity of the content is important to you, now you have to explicitly say, don't, don't do this negative caching thing. Don't do this thing that I don't want you to do. Override the establishment and, and, uh, and just, I don't know. I don't like it. I can give a concrete case for that, actually. And it goes back again to, to Pivotal Network when I was working on it. Um, we did have a sort of a, a kind of a fallback mechanism that everything went completely kaflui. Uh, we would be serving up, you know, 404 pages and 500 pages and so on and so forth. And we did everything through CloudFront. Um, and what would happen is we would have an, if we had an incident, um, that cache would just stay there for 24 hours. So the incidents would look like 24 hour outages to our customers. Now, if you're in the business of we're selling you a platform that doesn't fail, it looks bad if, <laughs> if, if they get 24 hours of 500s, right? They don't yep. believe you, you know what you're doing. Yep. Uh, so we, we, exact, we had the exact problem of it caching error pages when, it, when we really didn't want it to. Um, and there's a whole story about me trying to fix that and it's making it worse, but another time. <laughs> 
We could do a whole podcast on, yeah. <laughs> like, trying to fix it and made it work. Worse, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I like the idea of, uh, you know, if your website gets, you know, I don't know, Twitter hugged to death or Reddit hugged to death. I don't know what the equivalent of those things are nowadays. But, you know, it's something that basically sends your traffic through the roof that, you know, instead of having a bad experience of just a 404, you do get, you know, even a static page. Um, again, I think it's a question about how, per, you know, how configurable is it going to be and what are the conditions that it enacts. Um, I think it'll be really depending on how we feel about it at the end of the day. But uh, again, those are the new features. The new features are TTL stuff. So, you know, enjoy those. Those are other ones are coming later. <laughs> so, Well, as somebody who gets paid for setting things up properly, I, I resent the fact that they're making things work when they're not set up properly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that although they haven't released this feature, we were able to make negative jokes about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We can go negative very quickly here if we're not careful. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the nature of the audience that we have. All right. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, Azure Monitor for Containers on Azure is now supporting the preview of capacity monitoring of persistent volumes attached to your Kubernetes cluster or on Azure AKS. Uh, the new newer agent will start collecting capacity metrics for all PVs except Kube System namespace. And the preview has several features, including the ability to visualize all of the PVs associated with your pods via workload workbook, monitoring capacity users' trends and statuses of the PVs, enabling fast metrics based alert via recommended alerts in preview, and query and consume your PV capacity data at log analytics via Q KQL query. Uh, all available to you today. So again, I'd love when a managed service gets a feature it should have had all along. And then the next feature will be when they make it automatically fix the problems when your namespace is running out of disk. Is it too soon to joke about PV management premium? <laughs> yes. PV Never too late. Never too late. <laughs> it's been a while. They haven't released any ultra new blob storage in a while, so yeah, it's definitely. And then our next story up uh, is the one that I'm super curious about. So Microsoft has taken their first big step forward with the general availability of Microsoft Cloud for healthcare, as I've talked about here on the show. Verticalization is going to be the next big evolution of cloud and how they go to market on cloud. And so, you know, we'll see healthcare, we'll see fintech, we'll see all kinds of different uh, specialized solutions and capabilities as we go from building blocks to really full solutions. And this is a perfect example of it. Uh, the cloud offering from Azure includes several features and services made up uh, into this offering, including the Azure API for fast healthcare interoperability resources, which I now refer to as FUR, uh, Microsoft Health Bot Service to do all of your interactions with a bot that tells you that you have cancer, as all, all paths lead to cancer, uh, an Azure IoT connector for the FUR, a medical imaging server for DICOM, and text analytics for health, as well as several uh, OSS solutions for gen Microsoft Genomics, including the Cromwell on Azure and the Genomics Notebooks for Jupyter. Uh, all available to you in this new healthcare space, all uh, HIPAA, high-tech, compliant, and capable, and available to stitch into your healthcare solution today. I'm not sure how I feel about, like, a genetics tool called Cromwell. 
I, like if it detects I'm at all descended from a king, do I get killed? <laughs> yeah, there are connotations around that name. <laughs> it's an odd choice. And now I'm curious if they actually mentioned any of those particular things. Uh, Cromwell, it doesn't really get into the naming methodology. I mean, that's, that's a good question. I didn't thought of that when I wrote it. There's show notes. When did it all start? Was it Ask Jeeves that started it? Who did this? What, what was it? Uh, before Jenkins, it was known as Hudson. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter, take us to the lightning round, and we have a guest, so you have to explain the rules for the first round probably in like 40 episodes. Awesome. The rules are simple. I'm going to read a vague title of a news clip, and then you either don't say anything or you say something funny or you say something not funny. And then at the end, there are no criteria. I randomly pick a winner based on sometimes just one thing that I liked. Other times... uh Sometimes someone's just hit into the body all day long. And so they get they get the win based on just activity. It's kind of like kind of like a boxing uh, uh, judge, you know? You rarely agree with them, and you can't figure out why they did what they did unless there was a knockout. And for some reason, it always feels like you've got a headache trying to figure it out. Yeah, he also has exactly. Venmo, which I discovered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. My phone is right here. I'm yeah. watching. <laughs> what does turn this live stream and display? Ding! John is subscribed. Very funny, John. All right. Starting with the AWS site-to-site VPN now supports health notifications. I don't really need this feature because my users call me immediately when the site-to-site is down. Oof. I bet. Just health the VPN or can I get health notifications for other things? Does it tell you you have, yeah, you have cancer. I have terrible (laughs) news. Also, your bitrate has dropped. (laughs) And you have descended from a king, therefore we will kill you. That old chestnut. So many people in my family have that problem. We don't need health notifications. It's always the network's fault. Yeah. Yes, it is always the network's fault. I mean, fault. VPN is the network. So, of course, it's the network's fault in this case. <laughs> All right. My favorite word ever to say, Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility adds support for increased change stream retention and ability to watch change stream events on a database or the entire cluster. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard. You need, you need to really develop the advanced web scale technology to destroy records at that kind of pace <laughs> um, just to make them disappear. Are we still hating Mongo? Yeah, I, I think we all hate we Mongo. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's... I, good, because I, I mean, some people might say it's time to forgive and move on and you know, bring, bring us all together in the spirit of harmony and, and healing. It's just like, yeah, but you all lost a ton of data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> Just because you lost the data doesn't well, mean that we away. forgot that it existed. <laughs> by definition, it went away. Yeah. I measure all NoSQL databases maturity scale by, you know, at what point did they develop SQL technology for NoSQL? Exactly. That's why I, that's why I measure the maturity of all of these. I shouldn't be you know, bad-mouthing them, but one of the recruiters reached out the other day. But eh, you're not going to go there anyways. You know, we helped you out with the interview. Well, they lost your, they probably lost your application, so it's, it's fine. <laughs> Oh. I'll just send it. I'll just send it in several slightly different formats, so that they need to write four different if thens to work out which version of the record they're pulling out. The first time I I actually heard of somebody using MongoDB in production, they did this whole presentation. One of the questions came up like, "How do you deal with like the records changing?" Like, "Oh yeah, you know, well we've now got some if thens," and and it transpired that they had like seventeen checks they had to do to work out what version of the records they were dealing with. And the punchline is that this company's product was a risk management tool. Ah. <laughs> Yahtzee. 
Moving on, Amazon Neptune now supports Apache Tinkerpop 3.4.8 in the latest engine release. That's got to be not true. No, it is It is totally true. And I figured you were qu- you questioned if I was tricking you in this note, but uh, it is actually a thing. Yes. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, all I could think about when I read this one was I was like, well, you know, I'll tell you how I feel about t- Neptune right now. It's just a tinker toy anyways. So it's, it's, all, it's fitting. You really, uh, you really popped with that joke. That's the GraphDB? Yes. That's not serverless yet. No. Amazon Kendra adds Confluence Server Connector. The one feature I desperately wanted when they announced Kendra, and I was sad they didn't have because everyone knows Confluence Server Search is the worst. The worst. Can't find anything. I know I wrote the document. I know I wrote this wiki page. I know all the keywords because I wrote it. I still can't find it in the search. Still can't find it. Yeah. By the way, uh, Ryan, I need you to set that up on Monday. Yeah. The, the ticket's already created. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> EC2 Image Builder now supports AMI distribution across AWS accounts. And the next thing that's going to be announced is uh, the thing that detects that somebody is stealing all your secrets that way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have an interjection here of a Justin does a thing. I, I tried to use Image Builder for the first time um, last week. And uh, I can tell you that is not a primetime product <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. You know, it's very simple. All I want to do is I want to add, I want to change the time zone of a server and create an AMI. There, it's two files I have to change. I have to bake an AMI that I'm going to put into my thing. Super simple. I'm like, I'm going to do this with, I'm going to use this image builder solution because that's what it's built for. Uh, you know, after the third try of, you know, 35 minutes waiting for it to time out on some BS error oh. that makes no sense. And, you know, like you go to their troubleshooting the solution page and it's like, well, the first thing is your IAM permissions are probably wrong. Okay, fine. So you go figure out all the managed roles they created, which have all these lovely stars in them because, you know, Amazon loves to have these really broad permissions for their managed roles because that's not annoying at all. You set all that up. And again, it goes, oh, no, now we have a different timeout. No details. And all the all the error messages say, you know, turn on logging and turn these things on. You turn on logging. Well, if it doesn't actually get to pass the timeout, it doesn't actually log anything, and I gave up. And I went to Packer, mm-hmm. and I was much happier for myself. So now the question is, EC2 Image Builder, how long until we're all just like, meh, I'll just use Image Builder instead of Packer? It, it's not there yet. I mean, if they maybe if they added, maybe they should add Packer support for Image Builder so I can just write my images in Packer, then maybe I'd use it. How about Image Builder with Packer compatibility? <laughs> <laughs> No, they'd have to call it. They'd have to call it something different. So it'd be called AWS EC2 Image Packer, right? <laughs> or it'll be the yes. Packer Builder. Packer Builder. Builder DB brackets Packer compatible. Amazon Textract announces improvements to reduce average API processing times by up to twenty percent. I love a service that's barely been GA'd, that no one actually knows what it does, and then they're saying, "Hey, the thing you don't even know if it works, we're saving you twenty percent of the processing time." Why, thank you for you that. You can shrug even sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they've announced those improvements because they've just, re- rather than actually searching for the data, they're just returning the null strings immediately. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you reckon the teams might sandbag a bit when they do the performance? Oh. Do you think they just like leave a couple of, you know, four, one billion calculate pi kind of stuff? You know, I, I've wondered that sometimes. It, it definitely feels that way. I've got my review coming up. I'm going to shave 20% off. It's, it took me all night, boss. That's a good idea. This is the benefit, right, of that whole MVP. <laughs> yeah, the whole MVP process of you release something that's ugly like Image Builder is today, 
and then you get to constantly make improvements and brag about them. Yes, that's true. Yes, and the the fun thing about MVPs is that uh, the minimum line is always always rising, and so is the viable line. So if you stop there, you're boned. Introducing new visualization features in AWS IoT SiteWise, including status charts, scatter plot, and trend lines. I have a theory. I have a theory about yes. how they implemented this. I looked at the website and the screenshots. I'm pretty sure they just take the numbers and put them into Amazon Turk and get people to whack it into Excel 95, not even one of the modern ones, Excel 95, and, and then they copy and paste it back in after taking the screenshot. It is an, an underwhelming effort. Looks like Windows for work groups. Three dot one one. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. I'm super. I'm super glad though. I can finally scatter plot my understanding of IoT. <laughs> you know, can I just say, of all the things we make fun of Microsoft about, they had the best name ever for a networking protocol, NetBuoy. NetBuoy was the best name for a network. I mean, what you didn't like IPX, XPX, or Apple Talk? <laughs> no, no, NetBuoy. I loved. It. I used to love Apple Talk. You know, the, the protocol designed to like, hey, I'm here, and then everyone else says, hey, I'm here too, all the time. Like, it's not going to cause any network trash, you know. And, and this is before switches, oh, so they were all like just broadcast storms of Apple Talk, saying, I'm here, I'm here. Oh, Apple Talk. Oh. And they're all local. Please unsubscribe too. me from this list. So it's it's sucked for corporations. I was. That's actually the best analogy ever. I just I realized that it's the unsubscribe. Apple Talk is the unsubscribe mailing list. You know, when you reply all to the mailing list that didn't get you know, properly BCC'd, that is exactly what Apple Talk was. Thank you for that. I now have the perfect analogy. <laughs> just, I can't remember the company, but there was a company that made a um, a Apple Talk to Ethernet bridge. Oh yeah, and it, like Macs weren't really supported at a customer I was at, but everybody started dropping them in and plugging these bridges in and took down the entire company. Yep. Broadcast. And I believe the day it took it down was when the OJ verdict was coming in. My first IT job was at a school district where we had labs full of Macintoshes. And one of my jobs was to go find that adapter that went from Ethernet to Apple Talk and find yeah, the one that was broken and just causing massive loopbacks. And I had to get a network, a little laptop that had like the old version of Sniffer like the original sniffer DOS, and I would plug it into the network, and I'd have to go unplugged Macs across the building until I found the one that had the bad adapter. Yeah, I'm very familiar. Yep. The That's future awesome. is here at last. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where's my spanner? It's true. All right, moving on. HoloLens 2 Development Edition is now available for purchase in the U.S. Please go buy these, because I want HoloLens to be a thing. I think it'd be cool, but developers have to buy them. That's all I got. <laughs> Just a plea. A plea to the masses. Other people buy things because I want them. I'm not sure how well that'll sell. Amazon SES now offers list and subscription management capabilities. This one's sort of interesting. I feel like uh, MailChimp and uh, Send, Send, Send Mail, SendFast. SendGrid. SendGrid, thank you. I feel bad for getting the name wrong. So I'm gonna, sorry, everyone at SendGrid, who I actually have worked with. Um, yeah, this is probably bad for them. Like, they've been busy duking it out with each other for a decade now. Amazon's just like, hmm, money? All I was thinking was this, SES has finally reached its full potential as now being a listserv replacement. Yeah. It's only, it's only 30 years old, right? Yeah. Listserv, what? Major, major demo listserv. 
What if they added Apple Talk support to Amazon SES? <laughs> That's yes. exactly what we need. Those, those I've solved it. Those P4 instances it. earlier, can, they could do so much more network traffic with Apple we, Talk. We can turn off the internet now. I've solved it. It's it's done. Put a fork in it. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, I got to... Uh, you know what? We haven't had a guest win yet, have we? So the guest is an honorary win of bragging rights that you still have to point at the rest of us. So but if, if Jacques, oh, if Jacques, okay. if Jacques fully won, then <laughs> Jacques, he gets... Jacques wins for sure. Yes. Okay. I, I agree. For sure. Uh, I, Absolutely. I, I, look, I'd like to thank the Academy. Uh, yes. My parents, of course. <laughs> Not the little people who made this happen. Oh, there, just isn't a, there just isn't enough time, you know? <laughs> I got to squeeze in a speech about you know, the, the fate of the coconut trees. I don't know. There's that much time. I'm going to get the crook and right. pull him off the stage now. <laughs> just, All right. just play the music. Do you have a runner up for this one? I do. It has to do with automatically returning null records. On <laughs> that caught me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, congratulations, Jacques, on your win. You've, uh, You've schooled the four of us. Always, a, always an honor to be beaten by the wit of uh, our guest. It's always nice. Just shows how how lackluster our team is. Just <laughs> That's the power of positive thinking. Surround yourself with greatness. I mean, I, I mean, I still have a commanding win with only you know six weeks left in the year. But uh, I do see Ryan and Jonathan now are coming up very close on each other. Jonathan at seven and Ryan at six. So Ryan, you might be able to pull out second place. Just saying. If you just got you got a lot of mailing gags to count, and I think it'll narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Thursday morning. Yep. Well, I see uh, we don't have a president still uh, after an hour and a half of talking about the cloud, so it's uh, still going on, unfortunately. So back to that. It's because Nevada isn't going to announce till tomorrow. Uh, they were supposed to. I'm, I'm just going to take a moment. Attention, listeners. Uh, since you're in the future, could you give us a hint? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really. <laughs> Just they're like you idiots. They said this like four days ago. I'll tell you what. We'll keep it to ourselves. You ready? On the count of three, shout who it is. One, two, three. Really? Oh, uh, I wouldn't called it. No, no, no way. I didn't see that. I still think having no president is better than what we have right now, though. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. Who knew Kanye was going to pull that out? Like, just shocking. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, really. I, I didn't expect that uh, the octopus would become the vice principal. The vice principal, vice president, same diff. Yeah, same, same <laughs> argument. <laughs> All right, Jacques. Well, this is uh, this is your last time. It's to uh, mention the book, and uh, I will yes. I will remind our listeners before he mentions the book that we have a discount code for you uh, if you use on the Manning website and you go find Canadian in Action uh, with a simple Google search and put the discount code PodCloud20, you'll get forty percent off on the book. And uh, Jacques spent a lot of time and effort on this, so he'd like some royalties if that's how that works. I don't know if it does, but uh, you know, definitely go buy the book. You talking about me having a book reminds me that I have a book, and you should all go read it. Um, preferably after exchanging money for it, uh, and you'll get that fat 40% off because the 20 refers to the year and not to the amount. So if you like Jack, pay full price. If you don't like Jack, use the coupon code. <laughs> and, uh, but, and honestly, if, you, uh, if you've gotten this far in the episode and didn't just turn it off in disgust after you know, all the other humor in this episode, uh, if you get on the Slack channel and you message me and you're one of the first five people, I actually have a free code for you for the book, so you can actually get the book for free. So if you made it to this point, I already did it. You don't get it, Peter. Be right Sorry. back. Suck puppets. <laughs> so DM me on our Slack channel. I will give you a free code. If you're one of the first five people uh, to do so, I will give you a free code for the book uh, as a reward for listening all the way through our episode uh, and getting this secret information. Excellent. Well, that is it for this week in cloud guys. Have a great week. Thank you, Jacques, for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been and fun. 
we will definitely have you on again sometime in the future. Maybe when something maybe when something so. big on Canadian happens, you know, maybe we time it more around a big Canadian release or something. <laughs> have a good night, you guys. Have a good night. All right, good night. Good night. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Thank you.